We're in the middle of a series called Radical Unity, Radical Unity. And in order for us to understand radical unity, we have to understand sort of the dynamics of human relationships. And to do that, I wanna show you this quadrant here on the screen. This is Brooks' quadrant of human relationships. And it really is a, a, a grid of trust and agreement. Low trust, high trust, low agreement, high agreement. Now, if you have low trust and low agreement, you're an adversary. Low trust and low agreement. Now, I want you to think, is there somebody in your life that you don't trust and don't agree with? Hopefully you're not sitting next to them. There's probably people in your life that you've had a history with and you don't see eye to eye on things, you don't trust them, that's your adversary. If you have high trust but low agreement, you are a challenger. You try, this could be a coach, you know, for example, who is not seeing things eye to eye with you, but you trust them. You know, on a relationship basis, you trust that person that what they say is really in your best interest, but you don't see eye to eye. So they're going to challenge you, but they're challenging you from a place of trust, right? These are kinds of cool, these are kind of cool relationships, maybe a little high maintenance because you don't see eye to eye on a lot of stuff, but we need challengers in our life. If you have low trust and high agreement, we're going to call you an associate. I don't know of a better word. Low trust and high agreement. In other words, you probably work together, maybe in the same department, and so you understand you have a job to do and you agree with that and you understand you agree with how we have to do that and all that, but you just don't trust them. Something happened in your life, maybe in your relationship, maybe they betrayed you, uh, so you have low trust and high agreement. These people are your associates. You have to be with them in some way, either at work or even in your family, but you don't trust them, but you've got a lot of common interests. That's the associate. Then there is the quadrant of high agreement, high trust, and these are your allies. These are your allies. And these are fun people to be around. You know they're looking out for you, you know they trust you, they're true friends, and you guys agree on all kinds of stuff. So when you get together, you are finishing each other's allies, right? That's a wonderful uh, place to be in a lot of respects. So here's the question for our time today. Don't answer this out loud. Let's go back to that quadrant. Where does radical unity show up? Told you not to answer out loud, but some of you are did and are answering the right way. Radical unity shows up everywhere but the ally. Radical unity is not required in the ally quadrant. Why? Because you finish each other's? <laughs> I like that. You don't need radical unity among allies. You are naturally just bound together. You trust each other, you've got relationship, you've got friendship, you agree on almost everything, you know, you've got the same politics and the same religious, you know, I mean, you're just, it's awesome. You don't need radical unity there. You need radical unity everywhere else. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter five, verse 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Jesus says it is no big deal if you love people who are allies. If you love people that you have high trust, high agreement, no big deal, everybody does that. There's no reward for that. Uh, the, the tax collectors do that. Now, tax collectors were stealing from their own people. They were considered to be traitors, right? And they all love each other. Jesus says it's no big deal. Evil people love each other. In our vernacular, we might say, you know, Al-Qaeda loves each other. That's no big deal. It's no uh, success to love people who are very much like you. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. It's no big deal if there's a sense of unity with people you have high agreement and high trust with. 
Jesus actually then starts to paint a picture of what radical unity looks like. And he does this in the Sermon on the Mount. It is his most famous sermon ever delivered. He delivered it at the beginning of his ministry. And the whole thing is about radical unity. The whole thing in the Sermon on the Mount is about radical unity. I'm going to preach the Sermon on the Mount by paraphrase. And you will hear a lot of very familiar things in, the, in this paraphrase of this very famous sermon. And it's all about relationship. It's all about radical unity. Here's some excerpts. Blessed are the merciful. Be merciful to each other. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's about radical unity, right? Don't be angry with each other. Reconcile differences before you bring an offering to God. It's all about relationship. It's all about unity. Settle matters with your adversaries quickly. Uh, how about you don't sleep with another person's spouse? Isn't that about radical unity? Keep your marriage uh, you know, uh, uh, sanctified. Don't divorce for small, petty reasons. Uh, follow through on the promises you make to others. If someone slaps you on the left, turn to them your right. Very familiar? All about relationships. If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat also. If someone forces you to walk one mile, which Roman soldiers did, hey, Jewish peasant, you're going to carry my stuff for one mile. Jesus says, Jewish peasant, offer to walk two. I mean, you talk about eyebrows being raised here. This is radical unity permeating the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Give to people in need. Don't pray or give money for your own glory, but for the benefit of others. Don't amass material things purely for yourself. Don't be judgmental. Worry about your own trash, what Jesus called the log in your eye. He says, this life of radical unity is, is like walking through a narrow gate, and few are those who walk through it. This life of radical unity is what bears fruit for the cause of Christ. This life of radical unity, Jesus says, is like a house built on a rock. Jesus is offering an entire new way of looking at life, a, a way of looking at life through new lenses, what Jesus calls the new covenant, to look at life as though it's all about radical unity. And most everybody has the same reaction to the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, oh, that's just too hard. I can't even, I can't even imagine living that kind of life, that selfless and that kind, even toward my enemies. I can't imagine it. And so there's a whole line of theology that says the Sermon on the Mount isn't even for us <laughs> because it's so hard. Well, that's why Jesus called it a narrow gate. It's hard to embrace this vision of radical unity. And it's hard because, as we've talked about before, our brains are wired for survival, which means our brains are wired for self, which means our brains are wired to perceive threats. So here's some brain science for you. I always love this stuff. Here's some brain science as to why we don't embrace radical unity. Our brain is wired to identify a problem I have. This is what our brain does well. Our brain doesn't do anything except this well. Think of how I can benefit. Our brain is wired to think of how others impact me. Our brain is wired to judge others with a negative bias and our brain is wired to make up worst case scenarios about others and about the circumstances around us. Why? We, our brains are wired for survival. So we have to see threats, which means you're a threat if I don't trust you. You're a threat if I don't agree with you. Our brains are wired to combat a vision of radical unity. So Jesus says, the old way's got to go. I've got to bring a, a new reality, a new paradigm of radical unity, which Jesus called the new covenant. The new covenant removes the if word. In the old covenant, it was all about the if word. If you're good, God will bless you. If you're um, you know, holy, God will bless you. If you are righteous or devout or religious, God will bless you. That's old covenant thinking. It is wiped out now. In Christ, there's a new covenant. Old covenant thinking used the if word about our relationships with each other. If my relationship with God is based on whether I do good for him, then that means my relationship with you is based on the if word as well. 
If you're kind to me, I'll be kind to you. If you benefit me, I might benefit you. It's all just natural human nature, brain science working out, and it's all about the if word. That's the old covenant. Jesus brings in a whole new covenant where, as Steve said last week, love is the foundation and unity is the goal. Love is the foundation and unity is is the goal. And every one of us, without exception, every one of us is gonna battle this because we're battling our own brain science that keeps us alive, right? Jesus says there's, there's a new way to live, a new way to think, there's a new covenant to live by, a new kingdom that we can enter and is driven by my spirit. So it doesn't have to be driven by your brain science anymore. It can be driven by the spirit of God that's gonna guide us to this vision of radical unity. And in order for us to see the vision of radical unity, all of the old paradigms that built walls between man and God and built walls between humankind and one another, those walls have to be torn down. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to tear down the walls that divide humankind from man, from God. Jesus came to tear down the walls that divide humankind from one another. Here are five walls Jesus tore down. Number one, Jesus tore down the dividing wall of the priesthood. Now, the priesthood are supposed to be, in this case, men of God who were to build bridges between God and man and build bridges between man and one another. This is the role of the priest, a bridge builder, unity maker. The priest did exactly the opposite of that. In fact, as Jesus was excoriating them through public humiliation, screaming at them in the temple courtyards, undressing them before the masses so everyone can see their hypocrisy, he is yelling at them these things. They, the the priests, tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They're supposed to be lightening people's loads and bringing them to God. They're supposed to be lightening people's loads and bringing them closer to each other, but instead they're putting more and more burdens that sink people into this division with God, that sink people away from each other. They're doing the opposite of what they're called to do. And so Jesus, again, unloads on these religious leaders in the temple courtyards. Now, I'm not gonna scream, but I'm gonna get kind of close. I just want us to hear the, the energy and the vigor at which Jesus goes after these religious leaders who are not embracing the vision of radical unity. He says, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you succeeded, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you. You are blind fools. You've neglected the more important matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You strain out gnats to avoid eating an insect according to the law, but you swallow down your gullet, the largest unclean animal on earth, the camel. You clean the outside of a cup and dish so it looks pretty, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every unclean thing. On the outside you appear as people who are righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Mic drop. That's Jesus going after these religious leaders who didn't embrace the vision of radical unity. Jesus says your your life, your ministry is, is going to be condemned to hell and you cannot escape it. Now, when we think about hell, we have some maybe medieval literature in our head. The best equivalent culturally when Jesus says hell is is what we call a dumpster fire. That's a dumpster fire. Dumpster fire is, is a very commonly term used right now to refer to anything that is sick and twisted 
beyond repair. So, so we call a lot of things dumpster fires right now. It's actually become part of the uh, English vernacular, at least here in, in America. And so we would say things like this, the Miami Dolphins, it's a dumpster fire, <laughs> right? New York Giants, dumpster fire. Oakland Raiders, dumpster fire. Can we go on? Buccaneers, I mean, yeah, oh, uh, I am not a Patriots fan, but they are not a dumpster fire. <laughs> However, Antonio Brown, it's a dumpster fire. All right, there we go. See, the unity, agreement, and trust everywhere. So uh, when Jesus used the word hell, he, he's, he's talking about the Valley of Hinnom. It's a valley that you could see right from where he was speaking. He says, that's where you're going. It's a, it's, a, it's a trash heap that was always burning the trash of the city, including corpses that were corpses of criminals crucified. And, and that was a valley where uh, it was said that uh, child sacrifices to false gods were given. It's basically the image of every evil thing. It's a dumpster fire. So just think of a dumpster fire outside the gates of Jerusalem. And Jesus says to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that is where you're headed. All of you, you're headed there. You're a dumpster fire. This is so corrupt. It's such a corrupt system in the name of God. You haven't embraced radical unity. You're tearing apart God from men. You're tearing apart men from each other. You're a dumpster fire. You can't escape that. Worst of the worst, the most disgusting, rotting thing on fire. That's you, religious leaders. And it's happening still today. It's happening still today. Now, I'm not questioning anybody's motives. I'm not even thinking about any, anybody or anything in particular. But the whole notion of religious leadership oftentimes becomes uh, someone who is, is putting barriers between God and man instead of bringing them together. And so, as we talked about before, your average message is, God is perfect, you're not, do better. We're just heavy burden, heavy burden, heavy burden. And people leave a lot of religious environments, not all for sure, but people leave a lot of religious environments thinking, I am more condemned now than when I walked in. I am now heavier with guilt and heavier with shame, being told what I'm not doing, and if I did better, then God will love me more or God will bless my life. Jesus came to tear that down. So can we treat everyone everywhere as though they are unconditionally loved and accepted by God? Can we do something different than religious leaders normally do? Can we do something different than the religious leaders did at the time of Christ as Jesus is condemning them and screaming at them, their enemy number one, using the name of God to create divisions? Can we do something totally different even in what appears like a religious environment? I hate to admit it, but, but sometimes church appears like a religious environment, there's no escape. So can we, even a church, decide to treat everyone everywhere as though they're unconditionally loved and accepted by God? Hope the answer can be yes. Number two. Jesus tore down the dividing wall of the law, I think 10 commandments. Now we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our introduction, and so I'm not gonna belabor this point, but as Jesus begins his ministry, people are feeling as though he's trashing the, the 10 commandments, and he's trashing the law, uh, the, the old covenant law, the old covenant ifs, the conditions by which God will bless our lives. It is appearing as though Jesus is tearing those things down. So he has to clarify in Matthew 5, again, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I've not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophet. In our vernacular, um, he has not come to abolish the Old Testament, right? But he says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than that righteousness of, of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so here's how to think of God's law contained in the Old Testament. It's a stepping stone, right? God has a lot of stepping stones. 
as, as ancient civilizations were barbaric, he gave them the law to civilize them. But that's not the end of the, of the game here. That was just a step to civilize us so that when Jesus came to bring a vision of radical unity with God and with one another, we would be ready. You can't go from barbarianism to this vision of radical unity. The stepping stones are barbarianism, law and order, and radical unity. That's the stepping stones. That's how you read your Bible, right? So when Jesus came, the world was ready to hear a vision of radical grace because they were a world driven more or less by law and order. They understood justice. And so Jesus gave to them in the right context this vision of radical unity. So Jesus says, I'm not abolishing the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. It was a wonderful, beautiful stepping stone to get us to something new. And so Jesus says, what I'm bringing is a new and better righteousness. Because here's the reality. The religious leaders at the time of Christ were obeying every letter of the law. To the point, as we said earlier, they were not drinking their wine until they strained out every gnat because the Old Testament says don't eat insects. So they're strained. I mean, they obeyed every letter of the law. Did that mean they were wonderful? Does that mean they were, we, they were moving forward the cause of Christ? Hardly. They were the enemies. So get this. They were obeying every letter of God's law, yet were the number one enemy of God. This is why Jesus had to tear down the reliance on the law to bring a whole new paradigm, a better righteousness. Real quick, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. God has made us ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, but the spirit. The letter of the law kills. The Pharisees killed. The Pharisees killed Jesus in the name of the letter of the law. But the spirit gives life. The old way brought condemnation. The new way makes us right with God. The old way has been replaced. The new way remains forever since this new way gives us confidence. We can be very bold. So it's no longer an if relationship with God. God now pours out grace through his spirit, through Jesus Christ. And so it's now not a whole paradigm of us doing our part so God will bless us or give us eternal life. It's we just realize God has given us love, given us grace, given us forgiveness, cost us nothing. He calls us a daughter of God, a son of God, and he invites us to live in this new kingdom and invites us to enjoy new and eternal life. And it's just free, given, here you go. That's the new covenant. It's by grace. It's an amazing thing. So now we're bold and now we're free, right? And some people might say, well, if we're bold and free, does that mean that automatically leads to hedonism and everybody doing all every disgusting thing because now they can get away with it? 2 Corinthians 3, 18 goes on. And the Lord who is the spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. What is he saying? The law never changes anybody's heart. But the spirit of God, by the love of God through Jesus Christ does. How are we made more like God? Not by the law. We know that because the ones who obeyed the law the most were the number one enemies of God. The ones who obeyed the law the most used the law to kill Jesus Christ. So clearly obeying the law gets us nowhere. It was a stepping stone to a new paradigm now, driven by God's spirit, by the love of Christ, and that makes us more like him. The stone tablets of God's law don't change the heart. Love does. Love does. This is so clear in Matthew 22. It is the great commandment. We cannot share this enough. This is it. This is it. As people are arguing about the law, Jesus says this. Here's what I'm leaving you with. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
The entire law, all the law, the Moses, the prophets, everything are based on these two commandments. Jesus says, you love God, you love others, you are done. That's it, that's all you have to worry about. Old covenant, Old Testament, the law fulfilled. Let's move on. So can we love everyone everywhere as the fulfillment of God's law? Can we stop worrying about the little jots and little tittles, right, of the law and just live in the paradigm of love? Can we be a church that just looks at love? I mean, wow, that would be so incredibly freeing. Number three, Jesus tore down the dividing wall of bloodline. Now this is race, this is ethnicity, this is culture. Jesus tore down the dividing walls. Race and culture is what causes most of the deaths on earth. I don't have a number, but I did a little bit of research. I wish I had a number to tell you. The vast, vast, vast majority of deaths on earth by human hands is because of race, culture, ethnic differences. If you were to do a little Rolodex in your head right now of every conflict on the earth right now, I can't think of one that's not based on race, culture, or ethnicity. I can't think of one. This is what what kills us is when we look at each other by our race, ethnicity, and culture. And so here comes Jesus, and Jesus is trying to tear down the dividing wall of race, culture, and ethnicity. And this is getting him in so much trouble because everybody was so proud of how different they are, especially the Hebrews. We are the distinct and chosen people of God. We have a distinct culture. We have distinct rites and rituals and distinct ceremonies and distinct laws, right? Distinct religion. And they were so proud of how distinct and separate they were from every other culture. And they carried themselves and flat out said, we are better than everybody else. So here comes Jesus born in that culture. And he's saying, this has got to be torn down, flat out torn down. So Jesus does this by his teaching. He does it by his life. He tells a story of a Hebrew man, a Jewish man who was mugged, robbed, beaten, and left for dead. Two Jewish men walk right by him and ignore him. A Samaritan, as Steve said last week, and I have said before, half-breed dogs, cultural enemies, ethnic enemies of the Jews. Funny part of that is the DNA says there's nothing different ethnically about them, but there was such a cultural difference that they were sworn fierce enemies, right? Samaritan walks by, sees this Jewish man, picks him up, takes care of him, and pays for his treatment. And Jesus says, which one of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? The one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. New life of radical unity. Now, if you're hearing that parable, and parables didn't actually happen, they're just stories, right? They're made up stories to prove a point. And so Jesus tells this parable of a Samaritan that helped out a Jewish man who was mugged. And so he tells that story, he says, go do the same. But in their heads, they're thinking, well, that will never happen. That'll never happen. I've never seen it, can't even imagine it. So what does Jesus do? He not only teaches, but he practices this. He practices this. And so he goes to a Samaritan woman at a well. Woman at the well. First of all, men never talk to women in public, foreboden, culturally. Jews never talk to Samaritans, foreboden, culturally. Can't do it. It's unclean. Jesus not only talks to her, a man to a woman, a Jew to a Samaritan, but he says, hey, I'd like a drink of water from your jar. And to that, we will pass out. And she probably passed out right into the well, and Jesus had to miraculously pull her from the well. I mean, It didn't happen. He was breaking through cultural and racial and ethnic barriers incredibly fiercely, not just by his teaching, but by his life, tearing down the divide of of bloodlines. 
a Roman centurion. So I want you to imagine a Roman centurion would be as though an Al-Qaeda operative uh, who took over Temecula came to us and said, hey, I have a staff member who's in trouble. Can you help? To the Jews, Romans were like invading Al-Qaeda, right? Forcing their will and their way and their gods and all kinds of stuff. And, and so this, this, this Roman centurion soldier, a fighter, right, that oppressed the Jewish people and invaded the Jewish people, goes to Jesus the Jew with every bit of humility he can muster and say, I have a friend and a staff member in my house who's sick and I need you. Can you imagine a Roman soldier going to a Jewish peasant saying, I need you. And everybody would say, blank them. They're invading us, they're enemies, sworn enemies. Jesus, of course, you're just gonna let that person die because they deserve it. Jesus says, I'm going to your house. I'm gonna to go to your house and I'm gonna care for the person you love. Jesus is pushing through this. So can we treat every race, ethnicity, and culture with equal respect? Can we do it? And we might think to ourselves, yeah, we can do that. It's not that easy. It's not that easy because we oftentimes live in our little bubble of sameness. We oftentimes live in our bubble of allies, right? And so pushing to even have relationships with people who are ethnically, culturally, racially different is work. It takes some work. Last week I was in Chicago. I go to Chicago about six um, uh, trips a year. Uh, that's where I meet with this wonderfully diverse group. Every ethnicity, men, women, gay, straight, everybody's in this workshop and it's a wonderful deal. I just spent a week with these folks and they've all become great friends. But it's in Chicago, it's like in the city of Chicago and I love Chicago to me. It's the, it's the favorite city in the country as far as I'm concerned. And so, uh, yes, give it up. Bears, uh, dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> Cubs, you just like threw it away last week. All right, so. Um, I made a point to walk around Chicago. I put about 20, 25 miles just walking around the city and I love the city and I love just observing the city, but I, I, I'm always having to kind of put these filters on, right? I've got this Anglo male filter as I'm walking through the city and there's all kinds of different ethnicities and different communities. I mean, one block to the next, it's a whole different experience. And so in my head, I'm thinking, oh wow, they are very loud. And I would then judgy, 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 judgy. And I have to rework that and say, that is so much fun. Look at how much fun they're having. You walk around the next block, wow, there's a lot of people crammed into very small spaces and judgy, judgy, judgy. No, let's turn that around. That's a very cool family. Look at how much of a family these people are. There's a lot of them, but look at that family. Or these people are, are very um, assertive and they've got this face and they've got this volume and, and they've got this tone and I'm thinking, judgy, 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 that culture instead. I'm thinking, you know what? They are, they are honest people. You know exactly where they stand, right? There's all these filters that have to be walked through and, and we walk through them in, in, in relationship. And the more we're in relationship with diverse people, the more we begin to understand, the more we begin to, begin to appreciate. So, you know, you, you walk by a restaurant and you say, oh, wow, that food is just gross, judgy, judgy, judgy. And then you, then you taste it and you realize that food is, is in fact really gross. <laughs> but this goes to how we, how we perceive the immigrant, the refugee and other culture and, and to, to force this brain which sees differences as threats, to force this brain by the spirit of God that is more powerful than our brain science, the spirit of God to say, I'm gonna push past my ethnic bias and I'm going to decide to treat everybody with equal respect and to embrace their culture and learn from their culture. It, it, it's a doozy. 
Four, Jesus tore down the dividing wall of personal holiness. Now walk with me for a while here. This one might sting a bit to some of you, but I can't help it. Holiness is a big deal in the Christian church. And by holiness, it's a religious word. We never use that word anywhere else. But by holiness, it means uh, personal piety and obedience, following the laws, following the rules. That's holiness according to a religious definition. And that's a big deal in, in Christian circles. In Christian circles, there's actually a holiness movement that says if you are devoted enough and faithful enough and you're in God's word and you're in prayer, you can be as holy practically as God himself. Now, that holiness movement is kind of waning. Its best days are in the past. But there is this sense that Christians should be holy, pure, pious. And if you're not holy, you're the them, right? We are the us. We are holy, and they are the them, and they are unholy. That's normal in every religion everywhere, normal during the time of Christ. It's a wall between people. I'm holy. You're not. That usually means I'm holy in the things you can see. Thank God you can't see the things you can't see about me. And you are less holy than me in the things I can see so I can judge you. And it's, very, it's just a game. It's a religious game of holiness, comparing our own holiness. So what does Jesus do? He tears right through that wall, right? And he starts hanging out intentionally with people that religious people labeled sinners, right? And I just see Jesus looking at the religious people, keeping their distance from the sinners. And Jesus walks right past them into the house to have meals and drinks with the sinners. Just thumbing the eye of all this religious stuff, Right? because they're not getting radical unity. So what does Jesus do? He lives a life of radical unity, hanging out with people labeled sinners. Jesus taught that God is like a loving heavenly father, the prodigal son. The son goes into utter rebelliousness, but the father's heart is always for his son, never judging or condemning his son. And as soon as the son comes back, wanting repentance and wanting to get his act together and wanting penance and all the religious stuff, father says, enough of that. I'm giving you the family robe. I'm giving you the family ring and I'm gonna feed you like you've never been fed before. Right? I'm just going to lavish you with love and grace. Right, That's the heart of the heavenly father. By the way, I know fetid is not a word. Jesus brought himself to the ground of a woman caught in adultery, torn from her adulterous bed and thrown on the ground, and the religious leaders are about to hurl rocks at her head to crush her skull because that's what the law of God says to do. And they're about ready to strike. And what does Jesus say? He who is without sin, what? Cast first stone. I dare you, I dare any of you to compare your righteousness with hers. I dare you. They knew what was going on in their life. They knew the secrets that weren't public and obvious, but they knew ultimately before God, they were no better than her. So how dare we play this personal holiness game? So what does Jesus do? He goes to this woman. He's on the ground with this woman. He gives her love, grace, and forgiveness in relationship. And he picks her up and he says, uh, why don't you keep screwing up your life? Is that what he said? That's not very gracious, is it? He says, why don't you stop taking other women's husbands? There's a better way to live. And, and she wasn't led to that better way because of a threat of a rock hitting her skull. Obviously, that did no good because she was doing what she was doing. Law and threat never changes the heart. Getting down to somebody's level, loving them, showing them the forgiveness of God, raising them up, pouring goodness into their life and say, hey, there might need to be some changes. You're destroying your life and you're destroying others. And the most gracious thing we can do is walk them forward to make some better decisions. And that's exactly what Jesus did, all in the context of grace. Fifth and finally, Jesus tore down the dividing wall of the temple. This is the one that got him in most trouble. In fact, I think this is largely responsible for him being put to death 
is when he said this in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple and God were inextricably linked in Jewish culture. In fact, the presence of God was with and in the temple. So if there was no temple, there is no presence of God. They are not blessed. They're not going to prosper. That's just their, their religious way of thinking. And so Jesus says, this temple needs to be destroyed. And in their minds, in their religious interpretation, that was God himself needs to be torn down. But Jesus was bringing a whole new paradigm. Destroy this temple and I will build it up in three days. And at the time, they were totally confused. It began to make a little sense in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed rock by rock by rock and cast into hell, cast into the valley of Hinnom, thrown into hell itself, never to be rebuilt again. The temple is gone. The priesthood is gone. Tribal records are gone. The land they love removed from them. Everything that they clung on to, every single part of the old covenant wiped away, gone and then it made sense. Jesus did say, in three days I will raise it up. And so with the temple gone, what was he talking about? He was actually talking about himself as the temple. He is the new temple. Steve talked about this a little last week. Jesus is the new temple who rose from the dead. You see, what happened is the law was used to kill Jesus. And so when Jesus was killed, he tore down every bit of the dividing wall. He killed the dividing walls between God and man. He tore down the dividing wall of the priesthood. He tore down the dividing wall of the law. At his death, he tore down the dividing wall of the bloodline. At his death, he tore down the dividing wall of personal holiness. He tore down the dividing wall of the temple. The old covenant is gone by the crucifixion of Christ, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead as the new covenant. Jesus himself is the new covenant, and Jesus himself is in us and with us by his spirit. And we're not driven by the letter of the law, which was etched in stone. We're driven by the living God raised from the dead who's in us, who motivates us to, to live a life of radical unity between God and us. There's nothing right now that separates you from God, nothing. Do you believe that? Do you embrace it? Embrace that. Believe that. There's nothing that separates you from God. And now what do we have the privilege of doing? In that radical unity, we can say, God, I want to live that life with everybody. I want to be radically united with my family, radically united with my neighbors, radically united with my allies, radically united with my associates, right? radically united even with my adversaries. I want to pour out the same love you've poured into me, God. That's a new covenant church. That's a New Testament church. But boy, it's so hard getting rid of the old stuff. As we close in prayer, we're going to pray, God, would you help us to shed every bit of the old that we might live fully in the new? God, we thank you for your clear message of radical unity through Jesus Christ, your son. And as we journey through the New Testament and as we start with Jesus, it is so clear that everything he taught and everything he did was to bring radical unity to this world. First, between you and us. In every religious paradigm, we always detail how we are separate from you and far from you and you are holy and we are not and that's the whole line of religion. Jesus came to tear that wall down. There is nothing that separates us from you, nothing. Not even our own sin, not our failures, nothing. Not our guilt, not our shame, not our doubts, nothing. Because of the free gift given to us through Jesus Christ, we are one with our heavenly Father, daughters and sons of the, uh, of the most high God. And when we believe that, we are living into this eternal life. So we believe. And God, we want that radical unity between us to be poured out in every one of our relationships. 
that wherever there's divide in our family, we want to break through it as Jesus did. Wherever there's divide of race and ethnicity and religion, we want to break through that as Jesus did. Wherever there's a divide of, of labeling people sinners or unbelievers or I pray that as Jesus, we would break through that to live a life of radical unity among all humankind. And I pray that it starts with us. And I pray that this church can be an example of that. For your glory and to advance the cause of Christ, we pray. Amen.